Hi, welcome to A Little Cerebral. Today I am talking with Dr. Amy Lawrence. Hi, Dr. Amy Lawrence. Welcome to our podcast. Hello, hello. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about yourself? All right. So I'm excited to be here. And the reason you've invited me here is because I am a co-author of the CERTS model. So we're going to dive into that, I know. But to give people a little bit of an idea of my background, I am a pediatric occupational therapist who decided that she needed to know a little bit more about the education system that she was consulting to on a regular basis. So my master's is actually in special education and my doctorate is in developmental psychology and behavioral science. So I've got a research background as well. So I kind of come with this very transdisciplinary brain when I'm thinking about supporting individuals. I suppose I should also say I teach a lot at the university level and mostly in communication disorders departments. So I've got I've got that honorary speech and language thing going on. <laughs> I want to be an honorary OT. So our, our co-host Natalie is going to be super jealous that she's not here because she is an OT. So I'm the psychologist, she's the OT. Um <laughs> And you like to paddleboard with your dog. Can we add the <laughs> interesting stuff to your The human interest side of things, human yes. <laughs> the human interest. When she doesn't have her nose in a book or no. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to talk books when we're done because I'm reading a good one. Okay, so let's dive in. So why don't you go ahead and explain what the CERTS model is? Sure. The CERTS model is a framework for educating autistic individuals and individuals who have ch related challenges. So it really focuses on an acronym because you can't have a model of intervention for autistic individuals that isn't based in an acronym. But the acronym stands for social communication. That's the S and the C of the model. Emotional regulation, the E and the R of the model and transactional support, which is the T and the S of the model. And when you look at those three components, what you need to understand is CERTS as a framework is designed to be a partnership-based model. And what I mean by that is we're really looking to support the development for the autistic individual in terms of their social communication and their emotional regulation, because we know that those are foundational skills that are related to better outcomes in terms of quality of life for individuals. So we're looking to support development in those two areas, but we do it through transactional support. And transactional support is a little jargony, but what that really refers to is learning occurs in the context of relationship. So when we're expecting skill or development in the child or the individual in communication or regulation, we as the partners have to be willing to change and develop as well. So the T and the S is actually for the partners. The transactional supports is how we are supporting the autistic individuals. And when we write goals or objectives or we do anything in the model, it's always about what are we helping the individual with, but what are we doing at the same time? So CERTS is very much grounded in this learning is a relational endeavor and we are in it with you. <laughs> so, so basically the idea would be that the two skill sets or the two areas of skill sets for the autistic individual, the identified client would be around social communication and emotional regulation. And the way that those skills are built is through what that other individual, the, those individuals who are working with that client, what they do to modify how they interact to build that relationship with the client. Is that yeah. more or less it? Yeah, absolutely. So when we when we when we drill down, I mean, we can talk about social communication and how robustly we think about that at different developmental levels. And we always think about the how and the why of communication and emotional regulation. We're thinking about mutual regulation or co-regulation, as we often talk about 
and self-regulation. But when we talk about transactional supports, we're truly talking about what you just highlighted, which is how do we modify our own interpersonal style? What's that therapeutic use of self? How do we get get down and get with an um, individual in a relationship? And then also learning supports. How do we modify the activities and the environments to be more accessible for them? Okay. So what would be what would be an example of how you would use how a person would modify their behaviors or the way they relate in order to support social communication and emotional regulation? Like, you know, if I'm if I'm a parent and I'm being trained or if I'm a uh, parent, yeah, what would I do? What well, I love that you just said if I'm a parent, because when we talk about transactional supports, it is about the team around the child. And when we talk about the team around the child or the individual, it can be the professionals, it can be the educators, but it's also the family members and the peers. So when we talk about interpersonal supports, we're going to think about things like modifying interactive style for a developmental level. Okay, what does that mean? That means if I'm supporting a learner who's a pre-symbolic communicator, someone who's not yet using words or symbols to connect and communicate. So they're not using pictures, they're not using sign language, they're not using spoken words. They're basically relying on facial expressions and gestures and, you know, taking your hand and leading you somewhere to get something open, you know, those, <laughs> those learners. Um, so I've, I've got someone who's developmentally young in terms of their social communication abilities. As a partner, I need to honor and respect that. And that means I need to simplify my language. I need to pair it back to key phrases tied to familiar routines. I need to support my language with objects, not with pictures, because pictures are symbols, right? Mm -hmm. I need to use objects with these familiar phrases in these familiar routines. And that's going to be one way that I'm going to support their understanding and their ability to engage in their environment. So I, it's a long-winded answer, but it's just one little nugget of how we start to think about supporting. No, that that's actually really helpful because I know there have been times when I was working as a school psychologist where we would have kids in preschool who developmentally, they weren't at a place where they were using um, connecting ideas to symbols, right? So we, so the idea of doing something like social stories that didn't work, right? Okay. And so this is kind of like something you would use before to kind of um, scaffold, right? That skill to get them to using uh, the pictures, would that be correct? Or symbols? Yeah. Okay. And so one of the things that I mentioned really briefly <laughs> is CERTS is a developmental relational based framework for supporting individuals. And when we say developmental, the first important key in the model is to figure out what developmental stage somebody is functioning at. So basically, how do they navigate their day? And we have three distinct levels that we talk about in the model, which helps us frame what types of supports are going to be most appropriate. So we have what we consider the social partner, which is those pre-symbolic individuals that I just described um, to you. So developmentally, the youngest, not using any symbolic forms of communication to connect yet, might be really efficient communicators, <laughs> might have lots to communicate to you, but not using symbols to okay. do it. So those are our youngest kiddos or individuals. They can be quite old. Chronological age doesn't matter in this framework. It's just developmentally how they're connecting and communicating. Um, so the youngest developmentally are pre-symbolic. Then we have an, our language partners, which are an emerging language or an early language development stage. And that's really kind of when first words come into play and so our students who are primarily echolalic, who borrow chunks of speech from one area of their life and use it 
you know, productively in another area and some beginning word combinations. So our early language learners are our language partners. And then our next and final stage of development is our conversational partners. And, and these are individuals who have fairly robust vocabularies who can combine words in creative novel ways to create their own sentences and ideas to communicate with other people. And they have a little bit of a back and forth. So we have a very specific quick questionnaire to determine social partner, language partner, or conversational partner. But that is where the whole model falls out. So as soon as you figure out who your learner is, who your loved one you're supporting is in terms of those developmental levels, it sets you on your path for what goals and objectives are going to be developmentally appropriate and what kind of supports are going to be developmentally appropriate. So just like you said, for your social partners in preschool that you were supporting, Social stories are heavily language-based. That's not going to fall in as a support that we're going to use for that developmental level. Okay. And that's, okay, so that was actually one of the things I was going to ask you was, okay, what are you guys using to measure it? But you have your own questionnaires that you use. And so those those questionnaires would also be used for, so we're, even though it's looking at language, um, it would still determine in terms of like the emotional regulation piece. And, and is that because of how you would teach regulation? Yeah. So that, that's a great question. Ah, okay. I'm so excited because that's, that's a great question. Nobody's oh. ever asked it quite that well, way before. <laughs> but just the, so you know, like I talk a lot about emotional regulation on this podcast, specifically as it relates to ADHD. So like people are probably overhearing me talk about emotional regulation. <laughs> well, but that's you and I should just talk about regulation sometime and we probably enjoy it immensely and other people may not, but that, like, that is my sweet spot that we're in right now. Okay. Good. So the, the, the answer is, Yes, to some extent, that is very true. So for our social partners, our individuals who aren't symbolic communicators, the only regulation strategies, whether they're co-regulation, mutual regulation strategies, or self-regulation that we have available to us are sensory motor in nature. If they're not using language to connect and communicate for function, other functions, they're not going to use language to regulate themselves. That's not possible. So our social partners only use sensory motor strategies. That's where we provide our support. Our language partners, we go, oh my gosh, they're symbolic communicators. Now we've opened up this whole other world. We can start using these amazing evidence-based supports like picture schedules, first then boards, timers, social stories, and sensory motor strategies. We don't abandon the sensory motor piece. We just add to it. And then for our conversational partners, if they're developmentally around eight years of age, chronologically too, because we know the literature supports solidly by eight years of age and typical development, metacognitive strategies come into play. So that reflective and forward thinking. So if we're supporting someone who's a conversational partner and also has that kind of eight year developmental and chronological age, then we say, we can use reflective and forward thinking strategies and language-based strategies that are informational and sensory motor strategies. So our basket grows depending on their partner stage. So yes, we um, that language strategy helps us figure out what types of tools are most important or most appropriate to support the development of regulation. So yes, <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> that's really that's really cool. Um, and so I guess, I, I don't know if this question would be out of order. And I know this is a little deviating from some of the questions I gave you, but it's making me- Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so what I'm thinking is you mentioned before we started the interview about echolalia and the function of echolalia. Do you want to speak to that as it relates to social communication and emotional regulation? 
Yeah, so I, I definitely can. So one of the things that we typically wind up at some point talking about when we're talking about certs is kind of what the foundation of certs is. So, mm -hmm. so certs, the manuals were published in 2006, but they really have as a model, it's grounded in the in work in the, that was done in the 1970s with Dr. Barry Prasant's dissertation, because in the 1970s, autism was still a subtype of schizophrenia, echolalia was viewed as psychotic speech and something that needed to be extinguished. So he was a psycholinguistics major doing his dissertation who happened to work at a camp for individuals who had various disabilities, hung out a lot with autistic individuals and was like, this echolalia thing is totally functional, right? And so that was his dissertation was it was one of the first academic works that was published looking at the functions of echolalia for autistic individuals. And basically he was able to document that it served pretty much every communicative function for the individuals that he had in his study. And then Adriana Schuler published around that same time. So when I say, when you ask about echolalia, like it's near and dear to Sertz's heart because it, it's kind of the foundation of honoring, embracing, and understanding the autistic learning style and using that and working with that versus trying to counter that. So, so what does that mean? It means from a social communicative standpoint, we are totally going to embrace our students who are echolalic or individuals that we care about in our lives who are echolalic, and we're going to honor all those functions of communication for them while also helping them move towards creative and generative language, right? So honor the functions, but help work towards a different means. What does that mean? Are we getting rid of echolalia entirely for those individuals? No, they're always going to have that gestalt processing style. And let's be perfectly honest, we all use echolalia at different points during our days. We, we, we just do. Um, so, but it's about helping grow that, that function, but under understanding in that, and this is the second part of your question, that echolalia cannot just serve communicative functions for individuals that are really meaningful and appropriate, but it can also serve a significant regulatory function for individuals, right? And so we can hear it when in times of stress, right? Going to that place that is comfortable, familiar, and extremely predictable, like the script doesn't change or vary anytime, <laughs> or we can hear it in times of boredom, like Think about some of you are probably reading books that you really like and or suggesting a movie you've liked recently. And when you're bored, you go into your head and you replay and relive parts of that movie. You might not be as good at it as an autistic individual is in terms of getting it verbatim, but you're still thinking about it. And that's basically that type of function that we see. Um, and then we also see the echolalia that people often talk about as repetitive questioning right? Asking the same question over and over again, when you're sure they know the answer. And that can really come from not feeling grounded in the environment, really seeking predictability and wanting to know that that stability is there for somebody. So long-winded answer, but this whole idea of embracing and understanding and then supporting within the learning style is really kind of foundational to certs. And we do it really broadly when we start thinking about um, autistic individuals and their learning style. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like echolalia kind of serves a similar function to scripted speech in terms of regulation and just predictability. Yes. It's just scripted speech would be, you can mask a little bit easier with scripted speech, right? I mean, as long as it's not 
to a parent, right? But if you have, you know, I think echolalia would be more obvious. It would sort of, for people who are more like level one autistic, mm -hmm. right? They might use more scripted speech, right? And be able to mask. Well, but although I have seen people use, I mean, I have a client I work with who has some echolalia and he's more level one too. So maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. I just am trying to think I about think what it's that just, falls with language. Yeah. And I, th I think it just really um, depends. And it really depends on, on the why that someone's engaging in something. And sometimes, you know, when we hear individuals engaging in echolalic speech or repetitive speech, it's because it just feels really good to them. And it's really grounding in that moment. And it could just be a word that feels really great in their mouth over and over and over again, you know, and you're like, okay. Yeah. So they're basically playing, you know? So again, um, all, of, all of these different pieces. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I actually heard even that, um, and I, I don't know if this is true, but I attended a training, I don't know, several months ago that was very much about being autism affirmative which is where I learned that um, members of the autistic community want to be called as a general rule autistic, which is why mm. you're using the term autistic. I use the term autistic unless somebody says, Hey, I'd prefer you don't use that term. And they also happen to be autistic. Right. And then you would. Mock. Right. <laughs> that, that's an important caveat. Yeah, <laughs> the right. Neurotypicals don't get to say, don't use that term. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I remember this, this trainer was talking about information dumping, which would be kind of similar to areas of high interest. When we talk about like areas of high interest that are part of symptomology for autism, that that's a regulatory strategy. And that sometimes when people are really dysregulated in a session, they just go like, they just start, he encourages info dumping, right? Yeah. Just to help that person regulate and this gets to kind of what we've been talking about or i guess maybe not directly but alluding to which is this idea of um with autism affirmative and more of a neurodiversity movement this idea of in the past we were trying to get people to fit into something we were asking them to become more neurotypical so they could fit into a neurotypical world right and and there was this whole idea of you know, people with, with autistic people, but people with autism, because that was the language that was being used, they have trouble with perspective taking, which can be true. Right. And they have, <laughs> but then like, what about us? <laughs> what about those of us who are not autistic, who are having trouble with perspective taking and being, and, and, and us, those of us who are inflexible and not allowing people to be themselves so that they can do what they need to do to self-regulate. So this speaks to kind of what you're talking about, about this idea of, you know, allowing people to be who they are and to use mm -hmm. these skills that they have, but then also to develop other skills. So how do you, how do you guys balance that of here's a skill set that's important for the world and that is important for an interaction? And how do you still get to be you? How do you guys, how do you guys do that? So, you know, it, it's, it's a really interesting question because it kind of depends on the developmental level we're talking about, the age of the person and what their own personal goals and objectives are, or if they're younger, what their family objectives are. And I, I want to, I'm going to backpedal just a minute because I think um, what you were just saying about this idea of perspective taking, I don't know how much you've talked about on the podcast about the double empathy problem, but if you haven't, your, listen, your listeners should go explore Damon Milton's work um, and the work coming out of England, the UK in particular is really um, 
lovely and amazing. But again, it's, it's this idea of we think they have perspective taking problems, but when they're talking amongst themselves as a neuro kind, they're doing perfectly fine. It's this jumping into the other neuro kind of neurotypicalism that's difficult, but we, we think we know what they're thinking and we have no idea. And so uh, before we started talking, I told you I have a partnership called Autism Level Up and my partner, Jacqueline Feedy is autistic. And it is hilarious when you hear the two of us talk, because if we're talking together and we're doing a presentation, I will be thinking I am setting, I know, I know her really, really, really well for many, many, many years. And we're very close. And I think I'm setting her up for a point and she'll just look at me and be like, you have no idea what's in my head. Like I was not going there at all. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like even now I don't get it. Like, you know, like chop me right down. I got this, <laughs> but, but I love it when she does it because it's such a powerful illustration for other people to see that, oh my gosh, here are these two people who work together day in and day out, have a very close personal working relationship and she's still missing the boat. Like how, how can I begin to think that I know what somebody I barely know is or a student that I only spend X amount of time with or something like that. Anyway. Um, okay. So <laughs> I lost your question. There. Um, Oh gosh, I totally lost. We, your were, we were talking about the balance. So the, no, it's okay. Oh yeah. Okay. That, yeah. That balance. Yeah. It's, no. So it's great. And so this idea, especially when we're talking about supporting, and I know you were talking about your clientele being more the adolescent, young adult, college age, and, and, and on. Um, when we're talking about those individuals, what we really need to make sure is that we're not providing therapies that are promoting masking in any way, because we know masking is enormously detrimental to mental health in terms of suicide rate, depression, anxiety, um, self-interest behaviors. I mean, the laundry list is comprehensive and staggering and awful when you look at the correlational research between masking and mental health issues. But at the same time, your point is really valid. We want individuals to have the skill set to be able to navigate the world in ways that are meaningful to them. And that's the important thing. So especially when we're supporting clients who can be very clear in what they want, we want that self-determination and we want that self-advocacy. So we want them to identify what skill sets or what do they want to accomplish, right? And then how do we back it up and help them have the skills to do that? One of the things that I think about very carefully when I'm supporting, especially in school systems, is, yeah, we can write goals around initiation and reciprocity. We can write goals about, you know, picking up on nonverbal cues. But what we can't do is say how often someone's going to do it and when and where they're going to do it, because that's where masking comes in. I can give you the information. I can teach you about it. That's totally legit and fine. But when I impose when you have to do it, that's me trying to fit you into a box that you might not want to fit in. And that's not okay. And I think that's that's the really important piece when we start talking about these higher level social skills. And I actually don't even like calling them social skills because I don't know, whatever. But when we start talking, when we start talking about those things, the key is we're giving the information, we're teaching the why, always the why behind the information. And then we're putting it in their hands to decide when and where to use it to accomplish their goals. We may help point out, oh, it would be helpful if you did this in this instance, but it's not on us to say you have to do this in this moment. 
Okay. Yeah. I like that. And I was actually thinking if we're talking about initiation or even self-advocacy, which is a a very valid goal and something that's important for all people, but I'm almost thinking like the how, you know, like if it's, uh, you're going to go up in the middle of class and ask somebody for help, maybe not, but maybe you could send a quick message. Like we have Google chats, um, use the G suite for schools. You could send a quick message on Google chats. Maybe, maybe the how gets listed explicitly as here are some examples, but they're not told about when to use each of those tools. Like that freedom of deciding I'm going to use this tool now because this is how I'm feeling now. This is my level of regulation. I mean, maybe that's how we write those goals. Well, and I think, I mean, I think that's really um, a valid thing to think about because that's, again, we're talking about neurodiversity affirming and we think about communication and initiation of communication. I have, I I am a very fortunate person. I have to say, I have so many autistic friends. Um, I never talked to any of them on the phone. Most of them would not want to talk in person (laughs) if they didn't need to, but text messages and emails all day long, right? Like that's, that is their preferred method of communication because it allows for formulation and it allows for space and time to think about what they want to say. And it doesn't have that same social edge to it for them. So being able to honor that diversity in terms of communication and thinking about how do we embed that and weave that so that somebody can know that that works better for them. They can feel confident asking for that as a strategy, and then they can feel comfortable using it too. All of those things are really important. So if you look, if, if we look just to give you an idea in inserts, if you looked at a specific goal or objective around social communication, when we talk about um, using different word types, or we talk about initiation of communication, it's always multimodal. The goal is never written specifically for spoken words or an it is never written for eye contact. <laughs> but if we talk about initiation, even for our developmentally youngest, if we talk about initiation of communication, we'll talk about you know sending a communicative signal to somebody using body proximity, using gesture, using facial expression, maybe using gaze, using vocalization. But it has a laundry list of ways you can send a signal. It's not they have to do it this way, right? Which so many educational models get into the you have to, you have to initiate this way. We're waiting for eye contact. We're and starts is like, oh no, like we're all multimodal communicators. Let's like embrace that and really um, develop that for individuals. So for our youngest ones, it's like, if they come up and like nuzzle into me, I'm going to take that as a communicative bid for our older individuals who want to send me a Google chat in the middle of the class. Awesome. Like, and if they can, they can advocate for that's how they need to communicate that that's like, that makes me flappy happy. <laughs> even better, right? Like if they can add, like, cause then you're like, oh, they just advocated. They just did this, you know, they just used the skill that we were hoping they would have, but they did it for the thing that was important to them. Not the, not the thing that we think is important for them, you know, and they did it in a way that was important to them. Right. Um, and it, it, think about it in terms of quality of life, like that life skill to be able to go out into the universe to engage in social groups and social relationships in ways that are comfortable for you to let people know, you know, this is what I need or to go to your employer and say, these are the, these are the things that I need to be successful in this environment. I totally can rock this job if X, Y, and Z, you know? Yeah. Right. So that, so that then, gosh, and that's just so great in terms of, it kind of has like this big, bigger picture perspective of, 
you're advocating for yourself, but it's also sort of giving that perspective to the neurotypical community, right? Of this is, this is what people need. And we, if we're going to be inclusive, we need, <laughs> turns out we're not that flexible and we need to be the ones, <laughs> we need to be the ones who get a little more flexible and inclusive and are willing to, um, be accommodating, right? Yeah. Um, I, yes. <laughs> that learning's a two-way street and yeah. we often have a lot to do. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting as we're talking about this because I'm thinking about, okay, so as a person who has written many an IEP goal and, and you have a master's degree in special ed, which means you, I mean, you've interact, you understand sort of that I don't, that system that is the school, right? That this is our way of being and there can't be any deviation because schools are, I mean, I work in a school, not for much longer. So maybe that's why I feel comfortable saying this. Um, <laughs> I'm leaving huh. I'm leaving the school. So maybe I feel a little, a little more comfortable being more open about this, but I do feel like schools are places that um, they're, they have many, obviously educating children, keeping children safe. There's so many important reasons that schools do what they do. But if you look at the initial, you know, like why did schools even start hundreds of years ago? A lot of it was about assimilating people and teaching them how to be in society. And there's mm -hmm. still echoes of that, right? With here's how we want you to be, our, that whole function of we want you to um, you know, assimilate and, and be able to be a productive member of society, but you have to do it by doing it this one way, right? Mm -hmm. There's still echoes of that. And it seems like perhaps there could be resistance sometimes to some of the ways that, you know, CERTS is talking about, you know, writing these goals. Is that true? Yeah, I think, yes, I, okay. I do think that, I do think that's true. Okay. Um, and one of the things that we try to do very clearly when we're supporting students or we're helping school systems move into adopting certs and educational teams is really explain the neuroscience and the why the program is designed the way it is and really thinking about what what is happening in the autistic brain? How do they take in information from the environment? It is very different than a neurotypical individual. And so, you know, we've got some great studies and videos and things that we can show that often get like, you know, educators to be like, oh my gosh, they're really not like looking at the same thing that I expect them to be and like, wow. no, no, they're, no, they're not. Um, so one of the things we try to do is really help educate individuals in understanding this is a truly neurodevelopmental difference. It impacts all aspects of learning. Here are the real key places that it impacts aspects of learning. What that means for us as educators is we have to be as desirable and predictable as possible in everything we do. Like that is our primary job. Everything is built off that platform and then, and then move from there. And once we get people to appreciate the true differences and understand that their students truly have different brains, that they are taking in information differently. That's the first chink in the, this is all behavioral. It's all their choice, right? Which is where the resistance often comes from when people say, this is behavior. This isn't 
a, a, a learning difference or a developmental difference. If we can get in and, and re, we, we can shift, then we can get to the place where they start to understand why we're writing goals the way we are. And so when we write our goals, you're right, they're really different. Because if we say, we want this student to initiate you know, during their day, whether it's our, our social partner, language or conversational partner. Um, and we're going to say, we want to see them do it with, you know, three different people in two different contexts um, in, in this number of activities. Like that's how we think inserts. We don't think about 80% at all. We want to know about generalizability of skill. Like, great. They can initiate with this one person, but can they initiate with two different people in two different environments? Can they do it in three different activities? Can they do it with a peer, not just an adult? Like that's how we start thinking. And people start going, oh, that, ma that makes sense. But then the catch also, in addition to the, the criteria being so different, is the partner tag is always on there. So it's, we want the student to initiate when partners get down on the child's level, offer nonverbal choices, provide wait time, we embed all of those learning supports right in the IEP objective for the student. And sometimes teams go, ah, <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to be the one being judged. And it's not about judging. It's about accountability and making sure those supports are actually put in place. Because how many times have you seen an IEP? I'm sure many, where they've got an accommodations page that's like a laundry list. And it's, every fantastic support under the sun, but it's just like throw the kitchen sink at it. But when you actually get into practice and you're watching yeah. the student throughout their day, that stuff's not happening because no. nobody's tied it to a meaningful objective. And so in certs, we say, guess what? <laughs> if we expect change in the child, we have to be willing to change ourselves. So it's got to okay. be in there. So that's that last part. Okay. So the transactional supports, the way that looks done in a school is you don't just have that one page of the IEP where you have all the accommodations. You say, okay, our role is to create context and to be part of that context. And to change, like you said earlier, change what we do so that we are very predictable, right? Yes. And and maybe for some of the younger pre-symbolic, well, maybe even after that, right? Like the big emotions, I would think of like the floor time model with that big yeah. affect, right? That, uh, where, which affect means facial expressions for people who don't know. So it just means like big facial expressions to match the the words so that you're engaging that person right mm -hmm. and so um, and also being predictable and clear yeah. in the message you're sending yeah I didn't ask you any of the questions I'm so sorry that I sent you I asked you one but I, I, I read them quickly and didn't okay. really pay that much attention okay. to them so it's okay okay well <laughs> then I asked you all the questions and I've met my no, I'm just kidding <laughs> met my goal for this um actually what I was thinking is so how do you guys get involved does somebody reach out to you if somebody wants to get trained how does that work so that it sounds like a lot of what you do is with schools but how, how does a person become trained in this or you know. Yeah, so so it's it's interesting because we're different than many other models, which kind of have infrastructures to support massive trainings or you know embedded in college programs and things. So we're four academically affiliated individuals, and what that means is we all have our kind of own private practices or our own day jobs at universities and do our own our own things. So the trainings are done by the core. Uh, collaborators, which are, there's four of us, Dr. Barry Prezant, Dr. Amy Weatherby, Emily Rubin, and then myself. And we provide trainings primarily to 
teams. That's our goal. Our goal is to build capacity within teams. How do we do that? Sometimes organizations bring us in to help support kind of in a really robust way. But oftentimes we do right now in the COVID era, we're, we do online training courses and they're, they're like a three-day course and um, a school will send a team of individuals into this course. And our goal is to build capacity over time for these individuals. And so Again, that's why we say it's better if more people from a team attend because you can kind of bounce ideas off of each other. You can start to think about cases and how you actually apply the forms and the materials that we talk about. So each kind of day builds on each other. We also have an online training course through MedBridge, um, which is a, an online training company. And then hopefully we'll be back on the road and, and training soon too and kind of it out, out and about. But CERTS has been adopted literally all over the world, um, which is really amazing. I think I've trained on four different continents for people, which is great. But the idea is go build the infrastructure and the team and let the team use their expertise and knowledge within this framework to kind of launch, launch and go. So it's not an expert model. It doesn't require like ongoing support from a certs consultant. Um, it's more about the Ad adoption of the framework. And what we say is the people who have more experience and more knowledge of different intervention strategies, it's an easier fit for because you just feel like, oh yeah, this fits here. Um, and CERTS is also a process. It's something you grow into. It's not like you do a two or three day training and you're like, I got this. <laughs> it's you do a two or three day training and you feel like you've got the seeds to go out and start to practice and use the skills and work work into into the model. So again, it, it's a bit different than a lot of other models where there's certification or there's expert level supervision. This is more about it's got to happen in the real world and we've got to be able to train the yeah. teachers and the interventionists who are going to be using it. So one of um we we've got many longitudinal studies supporting the evidence and effectiveness of certs. And one of them was done in the public school systems. And it was the first study of its kind um, funded by the Institute of Educational Sciences, which was a randomized control. We worked in these really big districts like San Diego Unified and we, uh, the Panhandle of Florida and Atlanta. And we could randomize because these schools districts were so large, we could randomize schools into a control condition, which was a business as usual versus a certs condition. But within that it was a four-year study. It was a longitudinal study. But within each year, we were able to demonstrate and document that teachers could practice with fidelity within a nine-month school year and that they made statistically significant gains for their students in areas around active engagement, responsiveness to teacher initiation, things that are foundational for learning, which are meaningful to us, right? Versus just yeah. like vocabulary growth. Um, yeah. So all this to say, we know that we can get this to scale pretty quickly and that um, we can do it in a public school system. It's kind of like hard to see when people aren't, when it's very much, you need to do this and you need to do that. And we're not supporting our learners. So anybody who is working in the schools, I would definitely encourage you guys to check out this model because I feel like this would have more meaningful change for students. Um, and I, I will also say, I mean, so it's, it's, it's a lifespan model too, just to kind of throw that out there. So I talked about the developmental levels, but the curriculum, if you look developmentally, it ranges from about eight months of age. If you look at typical development chronologically, 
up through 12 years of age. And a lot of times people will say 12 years of age, I'm supporting learners that are way older than that. When you start looking at those goals and objectives, things around collaboration and negotiation, reading nonverbal cues, picking up on social interest, like there are things that we're all still working on. So yeah. it's, 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 so we truly, when I say, when I'm doing consulting and supporting um, agencies and schools, like the full lifespan, early intervention through adulthood um, and, and group homes, and and not just for adults who are you know have more need more support in certain ways. Um, the model applies to those individuals who are also you know really successful, living independently, in relationships with other people. All of those things that people tend to go, oh my gosh, you know, like so successful those individuals still need support, right? It's not that just because they've attained those kind of observable things doesn't mean they still don't have this autistic learning style where communication and regulation still present challenges. They do, and we need to be able to provide support in meaningful ways to them as well, so. Cool. Well, where people can find you at where what's, what's the, you should probably spell it out because certs is not really how people think it's spelled. <laughs> well, and that's actually quite a funny story. So when we first started writing about certs, Barry did his first presentation and he spelled it like the breath mint, right? <laughs> Just C-E-R-T-S. And he actually got a letter from like the breath mint company, a cease and desist trademark letter that we were encroaching on. Like, I'm like, okay, minty fresh breath for everybody or learning supports for autistic individuals, whatever. Okay. Um, so it is S-C-E-R-T-S. And I would say our Facebook page is more active than our website, but we do have a website that has links to the research and the evidence base. So that's definitely something to sh- check out. So it's just www.certs.com. And if you search Facebook, it's the certs model. That's the okay. Facebook page. And um, there are a few active communities on Facebook. Like there's one called the search sharing group, which is heavily based in the UK where all these teachers and practitioners go on and they share their ideas of their transactional oh, cool. supports and how they create I mean, their lessons nice. and things. I mean, yeah. It's, it's really, like, it, I want to see. Yeah. Cool. It's well, it's really fun to see what they're doing. I mean, the UK has really, really embraced cert strongly, which I is believe really that. Yeah. Fun. It's a, it's a good fit culturally. Yeah. For them. Yeah. Um, and so that, that definitely check out those two things. And then my work outside, but definitely related to certs is I have two, I have two websites, but I'm really going to direct you to one, which is my current one, which is autismlevelup.com. Um, all one word, autismlevelup.com. We have a Facebook page as well. And the reason that you may want to check that out is because Dr. Feedy and I are constantly creating new supports and new ideas to um, support energy and emotional regulation, as well as some of these kind of bigger questions you have around social skills and masking and how do we tackle all of that. Check out Dr. Amy Lawrence. Thank you so much. It was lovely having you here. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. (laughs) 